Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 is where we are going to spend our time this morning. We've been going through the miracles of our Savior. Over the course of the summer, we've seen Jesus heal a paralytic man. We see him calm the storm. We've seen him cast out demons from two demon-possessed men. We've seen him heal a woman with a hemorrhage uh, bleeding for 12 years. We've seen him uh, raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. We have seen clearly that Jesus is God. No one can do what he is doing unless he is God. And Jesus is God. So the question now is, how do we approach God? How do we approach such a miracle worker? How do we come close to somebody with this much power? We've seen the disciples are constantly more afraid when they see what Jesus can do. When the storm is still, they're terrified of the storm. And then they become more afraid because they're terrified of Jesus' uncontrollable power. They can't control the storm. And now Jesus controls the storm, so they can't really control him at all. How are we supposed to approach him? Well, the second question is, how does God care for us? Now, I believe both of those questions are going to be answered. How, how are we to approach the God of the universe, and how does the God of the universe care, uh, care for us when we approach him? I think these two questions will be answered in our text this morning. So let's dive right in. Mark chapter 7, let's read from verse 24 through the end of the chapter. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him, to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first. For it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and he came to Sidon, to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty and they implored him to lay his hands on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself, put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to the man, Ephatha, which is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Father, we come again to your word, just overjoyed with the privilege that it is to open 
your word. If we did not have this book, we would not have a full revelation of you. We know through creation that you exist. You have revealed yourself in a generic, general way through creation, but through your word, we know you specifically, specially, intimately, personally, and it's only because of you revealing yourself to us. And in these pages, we see yet again you revealing who you are, your character to us. And as always, as we see your character, we, we stand amazed in the presence of holiness. Our feet are on holy ground. And we see our own sinfulness as we stare at your holiness. So as you reveal yourself to us, you reveal us to ourselves. So Father, I pray this morning that you would take, as it were, the fish and loaves of this sermon and multiply it miraculously by your Spirit in the hearts of the hearers. That they would hear a better message that is, than is preached. And that each of us would see clearly how we are to approach you as you have graciously revealed yourself to us. And we, we would feel deeply how you care for us as we approach you. So Holy Spirit, we pray, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law this morning. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Two people, two miracles, Syrophoenician woman and her daughter, and a deaf and mute man. Both healed by Jesus, both have immense implications for us this morning. So let's start with the first miracle with the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter. Verse 24, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. He is trying to get away with his disciples so that he can uh, privately uh, preach to them, teach to them, prepare them for what's coming because he is uh, a few months away from being uh, slain on a cross. So he wants to get away. So he goes to a region that he will get out of the view of Jewish people that have been clamoring for attention, for seeing him, hearing him, having him do miracles. So he goes to a region of Tyre, which is a Gentile region. And he doesn't want anyone to know. He goes into a house. He tries to stay secret. But the God of the universe cannot escape notice. So, verse 25, after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, demon-possessed daughter, immediately comes and falls down at his feet. And Mark tells us, in verse 26, that the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. So, Tyre is in a, uh, it's a city in the area of Phoenicia, and Phoenicia is a Roman province in Syria, so Syrophoenician race. She is a Gentile through and through. She has none of the qualifications that would work for going before a Jewish rabbi, and she knows it. She does not have religious, moral, cultural credentials that are necessary to approach Jesus, who is a Jewish rabbi. She is a Gentile, a pagan, a woman, and her daughter has an unclean spirit, she knows that in every way, according to the standards of the day, she is unclean and disqualified to approach Jesus. And yet, she does. Without invitation, she enters the house 
falls down at his feet and begs. There's our, our word again. We've seen this a couple of weeks in a row. Falls down, submits herself to him in worship. Matthew's gospel gives us the parallel account. It's in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew gives us a little bit more information, tells us that she calls Jesus Lord, son of David. So enters into a Jewish perspective, a Jewish mentality. Lord, son of David, I know who you are and I need your help. Matthew also tells us that Jesus did not initially respond. He just turned away. As she's crying out, please help me, he just turns away. The disciples in Matthew 15 ask Jesus, would you please just talk to her and send her away? And it specifically says that they say, because she keeps shouting at us. We're done with all this shouting. Just get her away. And yet she bows down at his feet and Matthew tells us that she says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. She will not let up. She will not relent. She will not give up. And you know exactly why she won't give up. You know exactly why. On the spectrum from coward to courageous, you basically have cowards. You have regular people in the middle. You have courageous people who are heroes on the other side. And then completely off that spectrum, you have parents, right? <laughs> parents can't fit on that spectrum because if anything's happening to your child, you will do anything for your child. Now, this woman will do anything for her daughter. Please. Verse 26, my Bible says she kept asking. That's a great translation. She continually asks, please help my daughter. And Jesus answers in verse 27. There are a couple places in the Bible where I almost feel like I need to step in and apologize for the Savior. And you know that's when you're reading it incorrectly, when you're trying to say, I'm sorry, Jesus doesn't really know what he's saying here. But his response, it just seems harsh. He gives a parable, verse 27, let the children be satisfied first because it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now on first reading, that's incredibly harsh. I can help us out a little bit because the word dogs is in what we'd call the diminutive sense. So it's, it's small, little dogs. You could say puppies. You could even say pets. But it doesn't help it too much. He's still calling this woman a dog. He's calling her a pet. And he's saying, there's an order here and you have to wait. It's a difficult statement. This is a difficult statement. Now, the woman would know this. She's a mother. She knows you make the food, you put the food on a table, and the kids eat the food, and then if there's any leftovers, you can give them to the pets. You don't make the kids wait while you feed the pets and then give the kids the leftovers from the pets. So the woman would know this parable. She would understand what he's saying. Matthew tells us that Jesus explicitly says, I have been sent to go to the lost sheep of Israel, not the Gentiles. So he says a parable. The parable includes dogs are Gentiles, little children are Israel. I've been sent for Israel, not for the Gentiles. There's an order. But what would your response be? If I'm a disciple, I'd say, hey, Jesus, come here. That wasn't really nice. Jesus, can we, I don't know what you're trying to say, but can we soften it? Like, that was kind of rude. If you are this woman, what is your response? 
would your response be? Put yourself in her sandals and hear Jesus saying, I didn't come for you, and you need to wait. What would your response be? I would be greatly offended. That's why I'm not the Savior. That's why I need a Savior. I'd say, how dare you speak to me that way? How dare you say that? You're calling me a dog? Did you not realize that I called you Lord, Master? I submitted myself to you. I know who you are. You're the Messiah, and you didn't even pick up on the fact that I know who you are. I'm asking for your help. I know I can't do this on my own. I need you, and you're dismissing me? How dare you do that? I would be very offended. But she's not. She's not offended. She is a rebuke to my soul. Instead of getting offended, she agrees with Jesus' parable. She says, yep, that's exactly who I am. You call me a dog? Because I am one. She says, yes, I know I am. Listen to her answer, verse 28. Yes, Lord. Yes, what you say is true. But even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. This is what she's saying. I understand your parable, Jesus. I'm a Gentile. I don't deserve anything from you. So I know my place. I am second. I know I'm not first in line. I know I don't even have a place at the table. I can't sit at your table. I have to be away. I have to be underneath. I don't even have a chair. And I accept that, Jesus. But I know that there's more than enough food to spill over and satisfy me. Even if it's a tiny little crumb of grace, if you give me a tiny crumb of grace, I'll be satisfied. She doesn't take offense. Why does she not take offense? Why would we take offense? We would take offense because we know that, we think that we're not being treated the way that we should be treated. How dare someone talk to us this way? Do they not know who we are? But if you're like this woman, and you have a humble heart, and you have a right view of yourself, those harsh words, those difficult words, you're going to say, yeah, I completely agree. I absolutely agree. You won't take offense at the things that you usually take offense at. How many times do we get offended at things and we realize the reason why we're offended? We just studied this in Family Bible Hour this morning. The reason why we are offended is because we have rules. You have to treat me a certain way. And if you don't treat me that way, I will get angry at you. This woman is an amazing rebuke to my heart because she says, you can say whatever you want about me because it's true I know that I'm not worthy. If you have a humble heart, it's going to be hard to offend you. If you are easily offended, that's a sign that you have a prideful heart. We see the humility on display in this woman. She doesn't take offense. She doesn't take offense and she doesn't stand on her rights. This is amazing about this woman. She doesn't stand on her rights. She agrees with the place that Jesus has given for her. You're second class, you're a second in line, you're not the priority, and she says yes. She doesn't say, excuse me, I'm a human being. I have rights. Instead, she agrees with her place, and instead of asserting her rights, and in the words of a pastor, she says, I'm going I'm to proclaim rightless assertiveness. I'm going to assert myself, but without any rights of my own. Here's what she's saying. She's not saying, Jesus, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. 
Instead, she's saying, give me what I do not deserve on the basis of your goodness. There's a huge difference between those two declarations. Lord, she's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. I deserve it because I'm good. No, she's saying, Lord, give me what I don't deserve only because you're good. And that statement is astonishing. Lord, I know your glory. I know your glory and your grace is enough that even if I just get a tiny morsel, just a crumb off the table of your glory, I'm fine. I'll be satisfied. I just want a little bit of who you are. And it's not on the basis of who I am. It's on the basis of your goodness. So I'm pleading with you, Jesus, because you are good, not because I'm good. I'm pleading with you to give me something that I do not deserve, but I fall on your mercy and I know that you're gracious. Listen, whenever somebody approaches Jesus that way, you will always find compassion, always. And Jesus is utterly astonished. Verse 29, he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. Matthew tells us that he says, what an answer. Some translations say, what a wonderful, incredible answer. Reminds us of when the centurion says, you don't even need to come back to my house. Just, I have, I have a servant who is sick, just say the word. And Jesus, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Martin Luther says, he was amazed by this woman because she's a perfect picture of the realization of the gospel. Here's what Luther says. The, the gospel tells you that you are more wicked than you ever believed or possibly could imagine. But at the same time, the gospel declares that you are more loved than you could possibly have ever hoped and you are accepted on the basis of Jesus' righteousness alone. The gospel says you and I are way worse than we ever want to admit. We are way more wicked, evil, depraved than we ever care to own up to. But the gospel also says that we are way more loved, cherished, accepted by the God of the universe than we could even dare to dream. This woman is a very interesting picture of the way that we respond to Jesus and to the offer of the gospel. There's two main responses that we typically make to the offer of the gospel. The first is that of pride. And we, we hear this, we know this. Thanks, thanks for the offer of forgiveness, but I'm a good person. I don't need that forgiveness. And so a prideful response to the offer of grace. That's awesome that you would give me grace, but I'm actually not somebody who needs that grace. So thanks, but no thanks. Typically, we think that's the only response to the gospel. But there's the other side of the same coin of a response to the gospel offer. And that's one of self-pity. And I think we could have easily seen this woman giving that response. You're calling me a dog? I guess I am a dog, and I guess I don't deserve anything, so I'm going to wallow away and don't deal with me anymore. Nobody look at me. I'm just hideous. Self-pity is not accepting the offer that Jesus makes. It's the, the other side of the coin of not accepting the offer. You have pride on one side, you have self-pity on the other side. John Newton is so helpful. John Newton, pastor who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, so helpful in this regard. He said this to a man who was incredibly depressed in his congregation, over and over, depressed, sin on display. I'm such a wicked person. I'm such an evil man. Sin constantly in his view, totally depressed. John Newton writes this. 
You say that you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, indeed, you cannot be too aware of the evils inside of yourself. You can't be too aware of the evils inside of yourself. But you may be, and indeed you are, improperly controlled and affected by them. You say that it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but you also express too low of an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. It's good to have a a bad view of yourself, to realize, man, I am more wicked than I could possibly imagine. But then to take that before the God of the universe who says, and I still love you, and I'll never stop loving you, and to say, no, I don't believe that. You couldn't love me. So I say it's the other side of the coin of pride because it's really pride. In essence, you're saying, there's no way you could love me, and I don't believe what you're saying, even though you're the God of the universe. It's just as much a rejection in saying, I don't think that you would ever be able to love me. Just as much rejection as saying, I don't need your love because I'm good enough. And this woman says, I know I need your love and I know you are happy to give it. And that's why Jesus says this answer is astounding. This answer is astounding. No pride, no self-pity, a perfect view of yourself in light of who God is. This is how we are to approach our God. So what happens? Verse 30, going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left her. Her daughter is healed. Amazing faith. Beautiful picture of how we are to approach God. So once we approach God that way, what is it that we are going to receive from him? How will he care for us? I think we see that in the next miracle. Verse 31, again, Jesus went out from the region of Tyre and he came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. So over on the eastern side, region of the Decapolis, this is where he had healed the two demon-possessed men, uh, threw the demons into the pig, who threw the pigs, 2,000 pigs off the cliff, died in the sea. So this here, we have very clearly on display another Gentile area, another Gentile location. And they, this man's friends or maybe townspeople, verse 32, bring to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty and they implored him to lay his hands on him. Some people try to make a parallel uh, to you know, us being, if you're going to be the best friend you could possibly bring, bring your friend to Jesus so that Jesus can heal him. That's a true statement. I don't think you can get it from this verse because verse 32, they brought, the word brought is literally through him. They flung him at Jesus' feet. Who wants this guy? They throw him down. Why do they do that? Because he's despised by the people. To be deaf and to be mute, and this man speaks with difficulty because he's deaf, Jewish rabbis used to say that the deaf and the mute were insane because you could never figure out what they were thinking, what was going on in their mind. This man's totally, totally alienated, hasn't been cared for. That's why I think Jesus responds the way that he does to this man. Notice what Jesus does. Verse 33, Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. This man probably has not received the best personal care or attention. 
despised, rejected, and Jesus says, I'm going to give you my full focus. I'm going to give you my full attention. Nobody else is here. I just want to talk with you. Full concentration. Takes him aside by himself, and then he does some very strange things. There's four things that he does, which again, twice in one sermon, if I'm a disciple, I'm kind of like, you know what, Jesus, that's, you've, the bubble of personal space has definitely been broken by you sticking fingers and ears and spitting on tongues. I don't think you should do this, Jesus. What is he doing? Some people would say that he's doing all of these strange things as some form of a ritual, like a magician, some incantation of calling upon something to help him. We know that's blatantly wrong, right? We know that's not true. We know that because we've seen that, right? Calming to the storm, Jesus just says, be still. He never called upon any power because he has the power in himself. So that's instructive for us because we know Jesus is not doing these things because Jesus needs these things. Jesus is doing these things because this man needs these things. So that will help us understand why Jesus is doing the weird things that he's doing. It's for this man. Think about being in this man's shoes. Can't hear, can't really speak, thrown at the feet of this Jewish man, and he takes you away from the crowds and looks at you. I, I'd just be terrified. This might be the day I'm going to be killed. I don't know what's happening. And he grabs your face and he looks at you. And you just have to be wondering, what's up? What's happening right now? I think that's why Jesus does what he does. The first thing that he does, he puts his fingers into his ears. I think he's saying, I'm, I'm here to, to help your hearing. You can't hear? I'm here to fix your ears. The second thing that he does is he spits and he touches his tongue with the saliva. Your, your tongue doesn't work very well. I'm going to make it work the way it's supposed to. I'm going to loosen your tongue so that you can speak. He looks up to heaven. I think he's saying the power is not coming from anything I'm doing. The power is coming from God. God's going to heal you. And he sighs. He sighs. I think that's a mixture of sadness overseeing the effects of sin. I think it's compassion for this man. I think ultimately he's looking past this man to see that Jesus knows how the effects of sin will ultimately be conquered, and he's going to have to do that on the cross. I think there's a whole lot happening in this moment, so he sighs. And then he says, Ephatha, which is Aramaic for be opened. There are a whole lot of ways to cure things in uh, Jesus' day. For instance, if you wanted to cure blindness, one of the forms of curing blindness was to uh, apply the blood from a white rooster mixed with honey for three days upon your eyes, and you'd be healed of your blindness. There's a lot of crazy ideas out there, and Jesus says, I want you to know what I'm going to do. I'm going to heal your ears. I'm going to heal your tongue. I'm going to make you able to speak, and it's from the power of God. There's no crazy concoction of anything happening. I want to heal you. What I love about the way that Jesus deals with this man is it's very different from the way that he dealt with the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus deals with us differently. With the Syrophoenician woman, he said a very strange and seemingly harsh parable. And she says, yes, I agree. He deals with her a specific way. With this man, there's no harshness whatsoever. He pulls him aside. He's very kind, compassionate, gracious, very tender, very gentle. 
Jesus knows exactly how you and I need to be dealt with. This reminds me of John 11. You remember uh, Lazarus has died. Jesus goes to Bethany. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Martha comes out. Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And the text tells us that Jesus rebukes her. Believe. You don't believe. And then Mary comes in, and Mary says the exact same words. Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would still be alive. He wouldn't have died. And Jesus weeps with her. He cries with her. Exact same sentence, exact same declaration, and Jesus knows where they're coming from, and so he deals differently with them. I love that because Jesus knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly what I need, and he knows exactly how to get to your heart and deal with you perfectly. So he knows how to deal with this man. Four strange signs, and then a pronouncement, be opened. Verse 35, what happens? His ears were opened, and immediately the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. When Jesus does a miracle, the problem is gone, and the effects of the problem are gone. This man had trouble speaking because he had been deaf his whole life. He's not able to hear, so he's losing his ability to speak. And when Jesus says, be opened, there's no speech therapy needed. I just, again, sanctified imagination. I, I think that he starts to speak just like James Earl Jones, right? Just instantly, Darth Vader's voice comes out. And you're like, man, how does this guy speak this well? He does not need speech therapy. Why? Because when Jesus does a miracle, except for one, which will be very interesting, and we'll get to it in the rest of our summertime, uh, whenever he does a miracle... The problem is gone, and instantly the effects of the problem are gone. He's God. He takes care of this man perfectly. And he speaks, the man speaks as if he had never even been deaf to begin with. And everyone's amazed. Verse 36, he gave orders to them not to tell anyone. Uh, he wants to be known as the Savior of the world, to conquer sin and death, not to just be a magician, to be a miracle worker. But the more that he tells them, the more widely they continue to proclaim it. They're utterly astonished, verse 37. Of course they are, saying he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Who is this man? He's amazing. He does everything perfectly. He's the son of God. He is God incarnate. And he knows exactly how to deal with each and every one of us perfectly. Usually not the way we want to be dealt with, but the way that we need to be dealt with. So how do we approach God? We approach God the way that the Syrophoenician woman approaches the Son of God. And how are we cared for by God? We are cared for by God the way that this deaf, mute man was cared for by the Son of God. There's one interesting thing to make note of, and we'll end here. Verse 32. They bring to Jesus one who is deaf, and my Bible says, spoke with difficulty. Usually you see the word mute, deaf and mute. But Mark uses a very specific word, and it's actually used only one other place in the entire Bible. It's one word, spoke with difficulty. It's one word in Greek. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Old Testament written in Hebrew, translated into Greek so that Greek-speaking and reading people could read it, the Septuagint has this word used one place, and it's in Isaiah chapter 30, 35. Turn there with me, Isaiah chapter 35. I don't think it's an accident that Mark uses this word this way specifically. 
I think he wants us to go back to Isaiah 35 where it's been used only one other time in the entirety of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, literally the tongue of those who speak with difficulty, will shout for joy. Why? Because the Messiah is coming. Go back up to verse 4. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, don't be afraid. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Mark is connecting us to the promise of the coming Messiah. He's telling us to go back and remember, what is Messiah supposed to do? He's supposed to come and perform these miracles. So yes, Jesus is Messiah. But think about what God said through Isaiah just one verse earlier. The Lord is coming with vengeance and with recompense. But Jesus didn't come with vengeance. He didn't come with retribution. He didn't come to punish us. He, come, he came to bear our punishment. He didn't come to bring divine retribution. He came to bear divine retribution. To use the analogies of these parables or these miracles, the Son of God became a dog so that we as dogs could be brought to the table. The Son of God became mute on the cross. You remember on the cross where it was silent for three hours and he couldn't even speak because he's bearing the wrath of God. He became that way so that we could be loosed to call him God, Savior, Lord, and friend. So can I, I plead with you? We're coming to the Lord's table. A beautiful celebration that this sermon is just a perfect introduction to these elements. Because I want to ask you, how do you approach God? How do you approach him? Can I plead with you? Do not be too proud to accept what the gospel says about you. If you are too proud to accept what the gospel says about you, that you are infinitely more wicked than you think you are, then you're not going to rejoice when you take these elements. You're not going to understand why these elements are so impactful and so worshipful. Don't be too proud to accept what the gospel says about you and how unworthy we all truly are. But don't be so despondent and too despondent to accept what the gospel says about you and how loved you are. Don't be too prideful. Don't be prideful at all. And don't be despondent and have self-pity. When we come to these elements, we always encourage uh, our hearts, look inward, examine yourself, see if you truly are in the faith. But then don't stay looking inward because all you're going to find is reasons for God not to love you. Look inward, then look upward as fast as you can to Jesus who makes the promise, I love you because of my work on the cross. The Father has nothing but love for you because he sees you as perfectly righteous because of my work on the cross. Jesus lived the sinless life that you and I needed to live to get to God on our own. He died the death that you and I deserve. He bore our punishment so that all we could enjoy is love from the Father. When Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, he offers us through the gospel. We are far more wicked than we could possibly comprehend, but we are far more loved than we could possibly comprehend. And if you would receive that and accept that with joy, 
You will have the care of the God of the universe as an adopted son or daughter under his amazing love and care in his family. That's what you would have. So let's cling to our Savior this morning. Let's come to him just like the Syrophoenician woman did, with a rightless assertiveness. We have no rights. We don't come before this table to claim anything based on our doing, our striving, our deserving. We come to glory in grace and then let that grace motivate us to live for our Savior. We come on the basis of his work alone. Let's say with the Syrophoenician woman, Lord, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. And as we celebrate at this table, that's exactly what we say. God, thank you for giving me what I do not deserve because you are good. That's why we take these elements. That's why we celebrate them. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to um, ask you to pray with me and to examine your heart. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have clung to Christ and the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection, these elements are for you to enjoy, to worship, to, to rejoice in. And if you don't know where you stand with the Lord, if you don't know that today, if you were to die, you'd stand before him and he would say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, because of his work, not yours. If you don't know that, I would just plead with you, let these elements go by. Don't take them. These are for believers. The Bible says that judgment will be brought upon those that drink in an unworthy manner. So please just let them go by. But if you are a believer this morning, let's prepare our hearts. Let's look inward. Yes, we have to. But let's make it quick. And then let's look upward and stare at the work that Jesus has done and glory in grace together. Father, we thank you for your word, so precious, so profound. And we thank you for grace. And we do come before you now with a, a rightsless assertiveness to say, God, Thank you for giving me what I do not deserve on the basis of your goodness. How many times we come to you and we think, God, why aren't you giving me what I deserve? Because I'm good. And if we feel that way, not only will we struggle to feel loved by you, we will struggle to see our need for the gospel at all. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts now to reveal areas where we are walking in pride where we are walking in self-pity and where both need to be obliterated by the gospel. May we declare together we are far more un unworthy than we thought. We don't like to admit that. But because of the cross, we can gladly admit that without any fear of being cast out. Just like we saw this morning in Family Bible Hour, we are children of the Most High God who is unashamed to call him family. You're unashamed of us because of Jesus. And we are more loved than we could possibly comprehend. So may these elements remind us of that love. God, it is by your work and your work alone that we are saved. Yes, once we are saved, we will begin working, but our works never save us. They only prove that we love you and obey you because you first loved us. So may we renounce any form of self-righteousness. May we renounce any form of self-reliance and gather together as the family of God at the foot of the cross 
humbly, joyfully worshiping you for who you are and for what you've done. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.